join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We have a delightful Christmas present as our guest on the show today as we creep closer to Santa slipping down the chimney with all those presents. We get the present of listening and talking to Terry Sidhu. Terry is a great, great friend of mine, somebody who I have a ton of respect for. He's got a long history in the real estate industry, both holding a license at one time as an agent, and most people know him for his success in the uh, notary world. Terry is somebody who I have had the honor of knowing for a number of years. I look up to him in a number of ways, um, consider him a close friend, and today I wanted to discuss the concept of entrepreneurship together. And we get into some fascinating topics where, uh, as you'll hear, Terry was incredibly honest and forthright with his opinions and his thoughts in these various topics, including risk-taking, gut instincts versus research and data, uh, opportunity, hard work versus smart work, managing people, uh, managing others' expectations of you, uh, continued learning, the concept of retirement, and a uh, variety of other great topics as well. Uh, We also get into a very interesting topic that Terry is in a position to be able to speak to is that the the influence of the Indo-Canadian population in the real estate market in the lower mainland and the amount of buying power that they the, that that group has displayed over the course of the last 18 to 24 months terry being indo canadian himself uh, and and doing a lot of work with that community um you know has some great insight uh into what's going on there and i found that to be a fascinating part of the discussion as well so just all in all amazing conversation here um i hope you guys enjoy it as much as i enjoyed spending the time with terry and i just find it a really good way to uh, head into the holiday season here as we reflect on you know what this year has been and what next year will be and and uh, just listen to the wisdom from uh, from terry so without further ado uh enjoy my conversation with terry sidhu morning andrew good morning morning how are you today good yourself i would say i'm i'm getting to the point where i'm uh I'm looking forward to the Christmas break. <laughs> yeah. It's been, a, it's been a crazy year. Yeah. And the, uh, I actually, you know, before we, uh, before we get into the, to the topics that we talked about that we were going to discuss, I wanted to, um, just get a little update on, um, you know, some cha- the the recent challenges and what your office has been doing to handle them. And, and, and also just your, uh, uh, an opinion from your seat as you see it with these, um, this insurance stuff that's been going on given the floods. Part of, part of the thing, uh, obviously it started with a, when, when the first flooding happened two and a half weeks ago, the bad one, um, we started getting a lot of calls from pretty freaked out buyers, especially in the outlying areas where the, where it's most affected, the floods have affected, uh, Yarrow and Suma slaps and all that. And, um, at the time, when, when some people were calling, the completion dates were out a couple of weeks. So yeah. I always try to keep resolved and kind of, you know, let's just work through it. It's, you know, and then we, we have to be intermediaries between the um, insurance companies and the buyers and sellers. So it's definitely added a layer of a bit of fear and panic. But uh, it's starting to, you know, I think most people, you know, the biggest issue that we face with these floods right now is in those in those areas where there's a purchase and sale going on is obtaining insurance mm-hmm. so 
you know, and where we've coached and guided people to do is reach out to the insurance companies early. That hasn't helped in many cases, but the other uh, two avenues that have helped is we said, well, let's, 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 you know, come together just like any, any tragedy usually or the tragic moments like this. So what we've kind of coached them to do is kind of uh, reach out to the listing realtor, deal with the sellers, see where the seller's insurance has been. And then kind of, it's easier that way because the property has already been insured. Yeah. Um, for that purposes. So that's, that's one of the shortcuts that we've had to work on. I mean, it was obviously a lot of effort on our office and, and some realtors that were really proactive in dealing with all this stuff. So, um, yeah, it added layer, extra layers of a little bit of that. Most of the deals did complete on time. There are, there have been a couple that have been impacted a little bit more drastically in those ones. What they've done is just extended the dates by a week or two. And everybody's been pretty willing, uh, cause it's obviously, um, crazy times. It's, uh, mm-hmm. almost unheard of, right? So, well, certainly. Yeah, it's uh, mm-hmm. like nothing I've ever seen, and I don't think you've ever seen in your time. No. Is there a um, is there a certain insurance companies that where you've seen a trend where they've been more uh, willing to talk or not? Yeah, so some of the larger uh, online insurance agencies, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one is like, for example, TD Insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one that escapes my mind right now, but uh, those are... Um, because they're online applications, a lot of them don't really know because uh, they're more regional or Canada-wide where exactly the affected areas are. So one of the little tricks, I guess, that's worked for a lot of people, not really a trick, I mean, is to go to these agencies and get insurance. And really? The, yeah. And so that, that's been another. So those are the two things we've used as uh, things to get, uh, to, to get these deals funded, uh, even in, in lieu of this flooding and everything going on. That's surprising to me. I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought the bigger national brands would be more challenging. And then some of the local guys who've got, you know, boots on the ground and, you know, mm-hmm. knowledge on the ground would, would be more malleable, but maybe that's, maybe that's the opposite. Well, and, and in the crazy last 18, 19 months from the pandemic to the forest fires, where we got that idea or the uh, thing to kind of take handle through that was during the uh, massive forest fire season in the summer. We noticed that that was working then, so we kind of turned to that now, and that's kind of been our uh, okay. Uh, la, la. Yeah. Huh. No. Interesting. And have you seen? <laughs> is there? Have you noticed a big shift in premium rates with people who are successful? Are the are the numbers more significant? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in general, um, insurance companies have actually been edging upward, even uh, totally. despite the fact of what's happened last nineteen twenty months. But this yeah. is definitely added to all of it. I mean, the forest fires and now this and. You know, so, so pretty much any you've heard of strata insurance, what happened mm-hmm. there about a year ago, whatever. So generally the premiums are a bit higher and we're trying to coach our buyers and uh, people about that now saying, hey, just make sure you get your quotes and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they're definitely edge upwards for sure. So then aside from the, <laughs> the, the challenges of the flooding of the last two weeks, what's been, um, when you look at, you know, this lot, let's say quarter four, 2021 uh, mm-hmm. for your, for your business, What's the volume been like and the challenges been like in comparison to Q4 2020? Are you, how do you, how do you look at the two and how do you compare them? That's a great question. So I think, um, um, you know, uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to backtrack to March 2020 just to give everybody a bit of the yeah, please do. on it. Yeah. So when the pandemic first hit, nobody really knew what was going to happen. So March, April, I think everybody went into a bit of a panic mode and including our staff, there's, 
lots of fear out there because nobody really knew what this COVID thing was going to do or what's going to happen. So initial fears were the real estate market's going to crash. And I had so many fearful people, just not even just my staff, even clients were coming in doing proactive consults with us and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. and what that led to, and then obviously we know interest rates got chopped to almost half. And it led to a flurry starting May. And then, and so last December, uh, uh, Q4 of 2020, uh, we just saw, we just couldn't even keep up. So I think from mm-hmm. May, June to, I'd say all the way to this June, there was a 12-month period, I'd say from June to June, where the numbers were astronomically high. Like I've been doing this just under 17 years. And I think that 12-month period was probably the busiest in the 17th years I've ever seen it. And uh, yeah. So and then and then to get to this Q4, uh, it has tapered off a bit. So now we got our lives back. My staff don't hate me anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, so yeah, and so the last, you know, and, and they're real very healthy numbers still. Uh, but they definitely have not. Uh, they're not as frantic and crazy and falling apart. Like there's a 12 month period where it was just over the top crazy. And I think you know you know your real estate values and numbers and all that more than probably I do, but I think part of it is the supply and demand thing. Part of it, you know, everything has a bit of a run. And I think it's it's, it's still a very healthy market. We're seeing, I say I'm seeing as much sellers and buyers are very kind of in sync. In, in a crazy market, you see more buyers than sellers sometimes, but I think it's balanced right out. Hmm. Interesting. So hmm. what are you, what do you make of this supply and demand topic? When you look at real estate in the, you know, well, whatever we can say lower mainland, we can say all mm-hmm. Southern British Columbia for that matter. Mm-hmm. Like when you factor all the pieces in, so, you know, uh, the, the, the supply chain cost of materials, uh, labor shortage, like lack of workers, yep. dysfunction within municipalities and inability to bring product to market at fast enough rates. Yep. Like when you, when you throw all this stuff in, how do you, where are you landing on what you see in the next 12 to 36 months for real estate in the lower mainland? Well, and, and so, yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, supply and demand, as you know, is the main principle behind pretty much any industry or any, whether it's the real estate sector or the construction industry or anything like that. And mm-hmm. pertaining it mainly to real estate and construction, I think um, if you look at kind of what's happened, I, I mean, I, the good thing is I, on a busy day, I'll see 15 or 20 buyers or sellers in a day. And I see a lot of sentiment. And I start with sentiment. What are these sellers thinking? What are these buyers thinking? You know, um, Remax, Realtor sends me, you know, a seller or a buyer. What are they thinking? Why are they doing this? So I really get into the core of their sentiment when they're buying and selling. And what I'm seeing is just, it, it's kind of bipolarized a bit. And what's happening is I got a lot of sellers coming in that were, over the top, super happy because they got this number they never dreamt they'd ever get. Right. And and that's mainly single family, also townhouses, and not so much condos, but you're, you're seeing these guys and they have the feeling of, wow, I couldn't have timed it better. You know, Andrew Gracefield's team's awesome, or so-and-so realtors, they're the best. At, you know, so it's, they're on a high. But some of these people are either downsizing or some of these people are actually saying, hey, I cashed out. I'm just going to wait and see. The wait and see is kind of scares me a bit because yeah. that that gets me into this next thing. Your question is where I see it going. I think a lot of the sellers that needed to sell at a high number have sold, but I also think there's a massive, as you know, supply issue because the people that are buying up property, uh, not, uh, let's focus them on, I guess, Fraser Valley because that's where we're, you and I are more centered on, but is 
some of these buyers are buyers that have one, two, three, four rental properties, and they're actually speculative slash investor type deals. And I'd say it's two to one conservatively. Like I have a lot of young families. Say that. that sorry, I just I'm I'm I missed that. Say that one more time. A lot of the buyers what? A, a lot of the buyers are actual investors where they have multiple properties. So they're they're right. buying. So you know, if you're looking at the BC box in East Abbotsford, or you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Chilliwack, or you're looking at some of these areas, some of these buyers actually already have two or three rental properties. Sure. And they're just, they're, they're grabbing another one. They're grabbing another one. So what's happening is that's putting an extra crunch on supply and demand because these guys are snapping up two or three rental properties mm-hmm. where you got somebody that's maybe an empty nester and, you know, in their sixties kind of going, oh, I'll take 1.2 or 1.4, which I thought was 800 grand three years ago. And uh, so that's putting extra pressure on the strain of supply and demand. Because these people are buying multiple rentals, and and um, where I see it going, I think that's kind of what's happening. I mean, that's what I'm seeing in the last six months to a year, kind of thing. Sellers, buyers doing their thing. I think supply and demand is going to keep the prices in check, maybe even keep going higher. I think because I'm always reading real estate articles, just because kind of pertains to everything. Be- because you, what you're really what you're saying is you don't see a path where the supply can increase, right? That's right. And, and if everybody had a crystal ball, and you've been doing this for a long time, I've been doing this for a long time, the only side comment I got to make on that is I remember the sentiment in 08, not to go too far back in time, but when 09 happened, that was more of a global, I get it, and everything kind of those things. Here, the fear, you know, one, one of the things that scares me a bit is fear can last intermittently for short periods of time, but if you have it for a prolonged period of time, like now we're reaching on almost two years between the pandemic and the forest fires and the heat waves and now the floods and everything else, People are cashing out doing great real estate. It's been a big party for a year and a half for a lot of people. Oh, but yeah. I also see rising inflation being a big worry. Some people are even using the terms hyperinflation and devaluation yep. of currency. Yeah. I also see interest rates going up, and they're only, you know, and this is my bold opinion, but uh, I only see them going one way, interest rates as well, because I think they have no choice but to keep inching them up now in the next year, 18, 18 months. Mm-hmm. So between, you know, inflation and interest rates and everything else, they will dampen the values because you know so i i don't think you know and again i think supply and demand is so strong that it's not gonna bring it down but i i I do feel that there's uh other pressures now there's two or three big pressures that are starting to like i have sorry to uh, i have developers and some big clients that are sitting on property and they're trying to sell it before december 31st because the other worry is taxes oh totally so you know between you know i call it the three three factors the higher interest rates inflation, and now people are worried about increased taxes. Oh, so totally. Always, so. Ju- Justin's coming for your, he's coming for the money. He's, <laughs> That's he's, right. He's, he's going to, he's absolutely no question. Like the, the trillions or whatever it is of debt that we've piled up through the last, you know, nearly two years, um, yeah. he, he has not been shy in saying, you know, and sharing how he plans to pay for it. Exactly. And yeah. it's going to be, um, you know, business people and investors who, um, who you know, these can be taking a bite out of whether it's new capital gains taxes or just increased taxes on on net income. He's there's no doubt they're coming for it. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I see this. The, the you know the, the conversation around deflation of currency and then you know inflation. I think is a is a very relevant one. Historically, whenever you deflate a currency you simultaneously inflate fixed assets right things that can't be mass produced or easily reproduced and real estate fits into that category and so 
I have found myself in conversations over the last year, year and a half where, you know, you could be sitting with a client or a colleague or whatever. And somebody, you know, we've all been there. Somebody makes a statement and goes, I just can't believe the way real estate keeps going up. And at times in the right audience, I'll make a comment and I'll say, well, actually real estate hasn't gone up. The value of your money has decreased. Yeah. And, yeah. and have they, I, what I would suggest is both have moved some of the movement of these fixed assets. And you could talk about gold. You can even look at, you know, things like, you know, you want to talk cryptocurrencies. Um, they're increasing in the face of, you know, our fiat currency, which can be deflated with the push of a button by printing more of it. So. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't have my, uh, I, I feel like you, I mean, I don't look at this issue and say, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a, a ton of supply showing up out of nowhere, but I too feel like, I mean, the Bank of Canada specifically has said they're going to inch, interest rates up. And at some point in time, that's going to start to impact, especially some of those investors that you referenced who have been buying multiple second, third, fourth properties, because they're making their decisions based upon the monthly cost to carry those properties. Yeah. And if the cost of lending goes up, then that's going to start to impact some of those guys. Yeah. No, for sure. I 100% agree. I want to switch gears a little bit. How long have you been doing How long have you been doing this? How long have you been licensed? You started as a realtor and then you, you give me a little bit of the backstory and when you started and how long you've been at it. Um going to real estate days or just in the report? Well, I'll start with your, you got licensed <laughs> okay. as an agent. Not many people would know that about you. Not yeah, everybody would. Yeah, and then, yeah. and it, you're it, known as the guy who owns the busiest notary office in the lower mainland, no, but you started no. as a realtor. Yeah. So my story real quick on that is I actually was raised in Yarrow. Unfortunately, where some of the flooding taking place now, mm-hmm. so, uh, I still have some cousins that live out there that have been impacted. But so raised in Yarrow, I actually went to high school in Sardis. I've been around the lower mainland, and then in grade 12 year, um, when I was about 17, our family moved to Abbotsford. And then in my grade 12 year was when I actually applied for the real estate course at the same time as my provincial exams. So I was That's actually amazing. 18, yeah, <laughs> 18 years old when I passed the real estate exam, but I had to wait a year to turn the age of majority to get my license. So I've been in the real estate game now since, for, yeah, 26 years. And real estate, uh, when I was a realtor, uh, especially in the 90s, uh, it wasn't as robust and as it is now. Obviously, we we're in a time where NDP, you know, first tree was being affected and with the NDP was the mid, mid-90s, late 90s. Yeah. So, yeah, real estate's my background. And then I um, did that for quite a number of years. In fact, I still hold some licenses, just don't yeah. practice it on a sales level. But uh, so that was the background. And I would, um, I actually, that period of my time, I think, has actually shaped me quite a bit because I think it really taught me how to deal with clients and adversity and all that stuff. So I think I would never take my real estate or my real estate days as a realtor uh, away. And then I went into, uh, believe it or not, some people don't know this. I was actually a TD mortgage specialist for a very short little while. Oh, I didn't. I don't think I knew that. I didn't know. That. <laughs> yeah. So wow. Sold real estate and I mortgage, did some mortgages, and then now here I am doing the legal aspect. So the underlying thing, I guess you could say, has always been real estate in one factor or the other. But mm-hmm. uh, And then here we are. So then uh, found my way back to school, became a notary in 05. So this is, um, I am, I'm, I'm in my 17th year as a notary now. Hmm. And um, a lot of people, actually a lot of my clients are now second, third generation because the small practice I purchased in 2005 was owned by... Uh, well, the realtors actually at Federal Oak know this as well because they've been around for yeah, a while. Yeah. Uh, it used to be Shirley Miller. And um, 
she at the time had one or two staff and we took over a little boutique shop in downtown Abbotsford. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we've grown it to, with the help of people like you and your companies and realtors, we've grown it to about 12 or 13 staff now. And you guys do like, give me a rough number, kind of volume of transactions in a, in a normal month. Yeah. So right now, like November is looking at around 300 files, uh, 300 uh, files this month. That's incredible. So 300 is, I'd say, you know, most of those are purchase and sales. So we're dealing with buyers and sellers as you guys do as realtors. And then, you know, I'd say about 30 or 40 or 50 of those are line of credits or people taking equity out of their homes for one reason or the other. So totals around 300 probably right now. So yeah. as you've, I would, I'm going to use the word ascended into the position you're in today. Cause I, I, I will speak for, I can speak for a lot of people. It will say that you're a guy that, that people look at and admire and, you know, you've, you've clearly done well and you've clearly made a lot of great decisions. And I would say, a, a, a also a great indicator of a healthy and well-run business is, you know, the staff and what the staff have to say about where they work. And I know that, you know, your staff love their jobs and they, they love you and they, you know, they, they, they take a lot of pride in what they do. So clearly a lot of things along the way have gone right. But how do you, when you look back on your 26 years, how do you think about things like risk taking or gut instincts versus like research and data and analytics? Like surely along the way, you know, there, there will have been moments where you either felt like you didn't know what you were doing, or maybe you felt like, you know, everything could blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. How has that, how, how do you analyze that over time? Totally. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no, I, I, um, I think when it comes to investing, I, I, I've, there's two or three things, factors that I have seen over and over again. And I think one, you know, I, I got lots of lessons in my life, but one of the main things is my gut instincts have been, even when it comes to interpersonal skills or even my HR or my staff or my clients. Um, but when it comes to investing, you know, gut instincts versus maybe say data research and, and, and that kind of thing is um, there's two main things that I've noticed have really stood out in the last 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, that's really is I've noticed a lot of people that are, uh, aren't are prone to taking more risks often will try to be, well, not, how do I say it nicely? Uh, no, okay, so <laughs> I'm not, I'm trying to keep it all. Yeah, so. It's all good. Take the, t- it's yeah. a complex topic. Take your time. Yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where people that often analyze data and do more and more research are less prone to take that risk. Hmm. So, and I'm not trying to, like, my wife ran me really well. She's super academic, highly educated. I kind of just tripped upon, tripped upon this stuff based on my gut stuff. But so we're all different people. But I've noticed a lot of really highly academic people are uh, often take away less risk. And if you look at some of these investors that I was saying are buying three, four, five houses, they're not sitting there doing spreadsheets saying, hey, I only get four grand a month in rent and my payment's going to be 4800 on this property that I'm just about to buy on, on, a, on a bidding or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've noticed it, the more research and data-based uh, you are, the less prone you are to take that risk. That's one thing I've noticed in, in all the years that I've seen all these buyers and sellers. That's, that's what I see. So, and on, then, you know, uh, sorry, one question to that. On, on the surface, like, I know what you mean by this. Um, mm. and, and I know that what you, you know, you're not trying to say the secret to success is a bunch of orangutans walking around, just, you know, doing whatever they feel like in the moment. Right. Exactly. Like that, that's that you're, I to be you're, you're not trying exactly. to say that, but yeah, so, yeah. but there's something to that though, right? Like there's something about first impression 
gut instinct and the willingness to just say, you know what, this feels right, I'm doing it. Whereas sometimes the analyzation process can feel like a process of talking yourself out of doing something. I think that's what you're, you're, what you're alluding to. You're, you're bang on. And, and I think part, and, and, and the second part of that, Andrew, sorry, and you're, you're bang on. I'm not trying to say you just go willy-nilly and start buying No, stuff I, I know you're not, and I, so, I know yeah, that's yeah, not how yeah. you operate, too. So I, yeah, I, yeah. But, but, it, but it's tough to explain it. And, and so, yeah, yeah sure. go ahead. It's more of a common denominator that I've seen that, you know, like, for example, and I won't uh, obviously do a privacy. I have a lot of friends that are lawyers that do the same thing I do. I have a lot of friends that are accountants that, and they look at me and they go, how do you do what you do? Because they're more research-based. They're like every time. And so, for example, the last seven, eight years, especially all these people that have gained a lot of equity on their properties and everything else, they're, one, they're the ones kind of hitting the head on Wall Street and Kerry. Like, and, I'm not, and, and again, even, even us on this podcast with you, you're a well-versed guy, you know a lot of people in the real estate game. You and I both don't have a crystal ball as to what's going to happen in the next 18 months to 36 mm-hmm. months. But at the same time, there's common denominators that shine over at you. And I think that just comes from experience and stuff like that. But the second part of it is, is coming back to the um, investment part of it or, or even um, uh, you know, the gut feel versus you know, everything else. I think it's partly also you have to kind of, I, I always say this, if you get caught up, and I see it's a lot of young people that come in, like some people are family friends and, you know, you have a big sphere of influence in the lower man, lower mainland, and as do I. So some people are coming for advice. And I said, they'll ask me, they said, oh, so-and-so's doing this. I think I'm going to do this. And I said, if, if it's a barbecue talk and you're just doing it because somebody else has done it, mm-hmm. probably not the right way of doing it or the right reason to do it. Mm. Right? So, I don't know. I don't know if I answered that question to your, of yours or not, but uh, yeah, there's so many little factors. I, mean. I think it's a question that that's hard to answer, but it's it's yeah. it's but it's worthwhile listening to people who've critically thought about it and have firsthand experience in it. I yeah. I a thought that came to my mind as you were talking about you know your thoughts there. I had written down a note in front of me. I had said it, it was the note was just fear of losing. And mm-hmm. I, I know, and maybe this is the, the next great thing to jump to is like, you know, in your 26 years, I'm sure you've lost, you know, where you've made a decision where in retrospect, you go, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Yes. Yes. So the people that over, you know, well, maybe I'll just stop there and I'll let you speak to that. What, what, what have, yeah. what's your reflection on some of your losses? Yeah. So, so, um, one example was, I don't know if you guys know, we don't have this in BC, but in Alberta. I had a few clients of mine doing what's called land banking hmm. and investing in little um, fractional ownerships out in Alberta. Okay. And I believe it started, uh, I don't know the exact timeline, but see, 12, 13 years ago. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Let's, why don't we look into that? And I'm all about learning and continuously learning and improving. And I think most people that have that mindset um, are. So we, we um, I kind of flew out there with them and did the deal. And obviously, uh, when gas prices dropped, Alberta dropped, and uh, the investment ended up being a terrible decision. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and but, but then again, you know, they say you either win or you learn, right? So totally. one of the things I learned from that is stick to what you know, stay in your area and just keep, keep doing it, you know, either better than anybody else or just, you know, stick to it. So that was a big lesson I learned. I, I still got clients that come in and they go, hey, Terry. You know, we're looking at, I shouldn't even mention these towns, but just certain northern, let's say northern BC somewhere, uh-huh. like, 
you know, we were getting that 10 cap up there. We're getting the 8% return up there. And sure. I'm like, oh, do you have any family friends up there? Do you know anything about it? And I'm not trying to, and I, I don't like taking anybody's dream or ambition or anybody's excitement away. But I also like being a realist thing. If somebody confides in me and actually wants my opinion, mm-hmm. I'm also going to say, hey, be careful because I've, I've gone down that rodeo before, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, sorry, one more comment on the risk-taking question that you asked, Andrew, was um, I find when you have less, it's easier to go all in. It's like a poker, poker game where if you, have, you then you, go, you can go based more on your gut feel because but I think risk taking gets harder as you go as well. And that's why even as you have more to lose, you mean, that's right. Is that? Yeah, totally. So, so that's, so yeah. So, you know, Harry at 27 years of age, Mm -hmm. pushing all in took far less than Harry at 44 years of age, right? Like it's a completely different conversation. And I mean, as you grow your, your net worth and your network and whatever, I mean, it's maybe not necessary to be going all in, right? You don't need to go all in on something. Yeah. But do you find like th- this is now I'm maybe asking I'm asking a question where okay. I'm I would I'm maybe projecting a little bit. I'm asking a question from my own because I wrestle with this. But do you find that as you get older and as you have more responsibility, right? There's more people that depend on you. Mm-hmm. Are you finding yourself looking at research and data more even though that's not necessarily maybe what got you to the place that you're in? You're bang on. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So that's even in an earlier conversation when the research and data versus gut instinct kind of conversation was taking place, I was thinking that reel was going through in my brain. And I I find as your net worth grows and you have more to risk, and, and even my kids, as you know, I have two children, yeah. 16 yeah. and 12. I'm, like, I'm looking ahead to their university years and all that. And so now I'm finding that I'm putting little mini spreadsheets together or reading the, every yeah. article that crosses my inbox. Whereas before I'd be like, whatever it is, what it is. Right? So hundred percent. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, no, it's, it, and, and you know what the, the prime example of that is, I don't know. I'm sure um, people that listen to this podcast or even people, you know, will go to their bank and credit union and they'll talk about investing funds. And if you think about the risk tolerances they throw at you, it's age based. It's, it's, Hey, okay. So what, what's your timeline? That's what they always start at. Are you 50 years out or are you 10 years out? And that's what they base your risk tolerance on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of similar to that. How did you learn how to be a boss? Oh man. You know what? <laughs> yeah, for a yeah, bomb? I love it. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's good. I, you know, one thing I truly believe in is, uh, well, there's multiple things, but the core values that I run my leadership style on is I think if you hire good people, and again, that's all subjective stuff. People have different opinions and all that stuff. But I, I think if you hire good hardworking people and you learn how to delegate and uh, blindly trust them, you will grow exponentially, but you got to believe in them and you got to, you know, you're always there as a coach mentor. Like my staff, for example, I know that, you know, my top two, three management girls, which you know really well, they can, because they have, I give them that free leash and they know I have blind faith in them. Uh They, they, they go triple harder and they'll, they, they know they'll just, you know, so, you know, and I, and I think it comes up in, in some of our staff meetings that we run, um, my type of leadership, and they know this too, is is kind of a uh, kind of like a servant leadership style. Where I say to my managers, I said, "Look, you gotta, you, you no matter what the, you know, if you're in management, and the rest of the girls that you oversee aren't, the way it kind of works is you, you, we gotta we gotta lead by example, and that's the that's the crux of how you know, and, and that's been how all organizationally how I've ran a few of the businesses I've have been in, and I've I've noticed it has 
worked tenfold. Do you, like, you know how, whatever, when you read the business books and listen to stuff, like, you'll, you'll oftentimes hear of, like, things like, you know, mission statements or value, you know, shared common values or, like, the need for the company to, like, have a belief statement at your, and, and I can see how these things become more and more relevant the larger the company, because it's just, you know, it just becomes more of a mess of people. But have you ever felt, like, is that something that you guys have practiced and discussed? Or do you feel like there, you, there wasn't a need for it? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yes. So I think um, initially, I'd say, you know, when we first started, uh, like, I think my main three, four staff have been with me more than 11 plus years, all of them now. So mm-hmm. we've kind of, we're friends outside of work too. We believe in each other's, you know, um, systems and values and all that stuff. But I think I found, I did, I have been, you know, over the years, I think one part of learning for me, you know, continuous learning is a big part of my life. And um, reading books, as I think you and I have talked over coffee various times, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a big part of my life. And I've never ended up coming up with a mission statement uh, per se, but I think the value just got built as we grew. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but I I think no, I, I'm getting I, to the point. Yeah, you don't yeah. have it. You don't have something written on the wall that everybody goes like that's. But but I just be what I think I'm hearing you say, and what I know of your business is that you guys certainly have shared common beliefs and values. But you didn't necessarily get there because you put the thing on the wall. You got there just through years and years of actually having an incredible consistency amongst your staff. Like I mean, yeah, you have incredibly low turnover in your um, you know, in the in the most important positions in your office. Yeah. And I think part of it is we've, we've kind of stripped away. One of the big things I, I've tried to do even in the product management and some other business that we, I'm involved in is I say, look, and let's, let's get rid of that veil that separates, you know, cause I truly believe in my core so much that we're, we're friends too. We do everything. And I think between business personal, we've kind of made it all one and they're all, you know, and I think if you truly care, about one another, like my staff treat my business as is their own, and I do know I feel the same way back to them. And I always say when life gets bad for them, like you know they've been to my house several times, we hang out outside of work, and I say how can I help you as a person? Forget business. And when you say something like if you actually look somebody in the eye and say something powerful like that, mm-hmm. you'd be amazed at how much how much changes. Mm. You know they're not just looking for their two week paycheck. If you just look at them in the eye and say hey, how can I help you? I know you got a lot going on at home. Like you know what what else can I do? outside of this and, and it's, it's amazing how much power that has hmm. has there been anything that has been surprising or uniquely challenging on the you know again from the chair of you know having employees and running an operation like within the the scope of the pandemic i think i think you mentioned that you know, one time mm-hmm. your staff wanted to kill you what did you yeah. find yourself managing that you hadn't experienced before and that you had to scramble on yeah, totally. Good point, actually. Um, I think the worst part kind of was around April of last year, April of 2020, about a month into the pandemic, partly because I've never had it before. Like, I think entrepreneurs can kind of put their team together, you can assemble and you can t- tackle issues uh, together. But I think what ended up happening there is I had one at a time. Um, I-, I actually had three, four things all hitting me at once. Uh, right, right at the onset of the pandemic. And part of the more, like sometimes we all have, you know, we all have bad days. We all have staffing issues. We have each, especially when you have a team of 12 or 13 uh, on your legal side, you know, they're, they're all going to have issues and whatnot. And what ended up happening uh, is I think fear settled in, not only on the staffing level, but I also had clients calling us 
completely freaked out. Like just, right. you know, they sold and bought a house. They had heard a lot of realtors were calling me, my friends, and a lot of my realtors, as you know, are, uh, you know, a lot of them are, you know, in your office and even outside of it. They all have my cell number, so they'll text me and they were hearing. When fear hits, a lot of people uh, start to panic a bit. And I think one of the panics was I was getting texts from realtors saying, hey, I heard the land title system's going to completely shut down. And people have moving trucks lined up. So, yeah. And so I think, um, you know, there's panic settling in the real estate industry in general. Buyers and sellers are freaking out. At staffing issues, the staff were basically saying, we're not coming to work. Yeah. And then, you know, and part of the thing is you get guidance, of course, from, you know, the Noting Society and other people, and you try to stick handle to it. But I think part of the, what made the pandemic really hard for me is getting hit three, four times all at once. And not all the answers were there because things were developing as, as, um, as you went. Yeah. And we weren't called essential right away either. We, we, there's about a 10 day period there mm-hmm. where the staff, where the staff, like we're staying home. I'm like, no, 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 no. We can't stay home. You know, every place was clients <laughs> moving into the house tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, so I think yeah. it was just, and I think if you get to the core of that core issue here, a fear is, is it makes people nutty. Yeah. And, so, and who could blame them? Because the yeah. fear mongering that's gone on in the, in the last 20 yeah. months has well, been incredible. I mean, I might as well throw this in there too. My wife, uh, my wife was no less. She was sending me down the, through, through my uh, gym entrance, separate entrance, feeding me dinner for two weeks away from the kids for those same clients. <laughs> that's <laughs> that incredible. didn't help for two weeks either. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. Like that was early on, very early on. That was early on. That was like end of March kind of thing, where it was about a 10 day period. She's like, you can have your own entrance. Like, That's amazing. You're a pariah yeah. in your own home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So that, that was kind of unique and crazy during the pandemic where it didn't feel good for a month or two, but power yeah. through. Yeah. Mm. We've maybe touched on this a little bit, but, well, actually we haven't, but it's related. Working hard and working smart. Mm. What, what is, yeah. how does that figure in your head? Yeah, I think I, I think they're closely related. I think um, my first two or three years when I first took over this smaller notary office, I think I literally was running a sprint. I, I, I don't know. My gut feel on that is I think the harder you work, the smarter you get. And it goes back to the whole mastery thing of 10,000 hours as well. Yeah. You know, you do something, uh, uh, you know, long enough and hard enough what ends up happening and uh, is, is, I don't know, in my belief, in my view, is that it becomes a part of your subconscious. So it's like, you know, you riding a car and you're on a speakerphone talking to somebody and turning left and turning right and riding a bike. And you know what I mean? So that's all, you know, and, and if you do it long enough and hard enough, you do naturally get smarter at it because your subconscious picks up a lot of it. You don't have to focus on a lot of the stuff you've been doing sure. for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, and, and the smart, you know, the smart part of it is, comes with time i think it's um you know you, you realize as the harder you work there's other avenues and doors and, and and i think the smart part also comes with as you do it long enough you meet people like like-minded and mm-hmm. and then they make your life easier as well because they may guide you down the path where you're like oh wait a minute i didn't even know that existed yeah totally what you, you mentioned well i know from many conversations that you're a, a reader and 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 whatnot is there certain writers or thinkers that you know that you look to and go like okay i want to be you know i want to mimic that person or i want to emulate that well that's interesting i i um i think uh when i was you know just starting out like a 1920 year old 
everybody has their issues, whether it's family issues and whatnot. And I think um, my family was in at a good spot for in my early 20s. And I think I actually, you know, truly believe you need to listen to your kind of heart and soul and, and what your body needs at that time. So I, I know earlier when I started reading when I was 19, 20, 21, doing real estate back in the day was, was um, and, you know, um, is I, I started reading a lot of motivational books because that's kind of, kind of what I needed to get out of my little, you know, growing up in the era, moving to Abbotsford to a bigger city. I thought Abbotsford was the size of, size of New York at the time. But, you yeah. know, <laughs> so, you know, at, at, you know, the first four or five years, I was reading these motivational books. Was, you know, you know, Tony Robbins comes to mind. Yeah. I saw him in Vegas once live. And, yeah. you know, you know, you know these did he the walk thing, on, you know. did he walk on fire for you or what? <laughs> I did not go down. No. You know, <laughs> I think he yeah. used to step on coals at one point in time, that guy. He did, yeah, back yeah. in the day. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you know, for two, three years, I read a lot of his books early on in my life. And then as I got in, settled into the notary office, we, I started reading more, um, you know, Steve Jobs book was one of the big ones I picked up. And then mm-hmm. there's a couple just to kind of, you know, you, you're getting inside people's real mindset is what it is when you're reading all these things and putting it together in your own, in your own paradigm. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, then it was the how to, so first it was like motivate yourself and elevate your energy and your, and everything else just so you can perform at a high level. Well, when that was, and so I think you listen to your body and those are the kind of books that gravitate to you naturally. So mm-hmm. I think motivational was first. Then it was like the how to, how do I build this business? There's notary business that I newly acquired. And then, you know, how do I, set up my first lunch with somebody like an Andrew Bracewell who's a smart guy. You know what I mean? So, you know, you, you kind of figure out the how to. Don't blow smoke up my ass, Terry. Don't hey, hey, you, you know what? I, I, I got to do that a little bit. No, it's kidding. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. And now it's more, you know, I, I think the latest books I've been reading, I mean, uh, Obama's uh, autobiography was a good one. I'm yeah. So I finished it. And I think more, it's kind of, now it's more like a little bit of soul searching going on as far as mindfulness and raising the kids and kind of being a bit more present because, you know, it takes time and energy to run efficiently for so long, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, well yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think about retirement or like, do you, do you have a, a, a an age or a date you look at where you try to yeah. get to something or, I mean, there's a variety of answers you hear when you ask this kind of question, where, how do you, how do you figure that out in your head? It's, it's funny. I'm so glad my wife's not on this call. Uh, but um, <laughs> we could call her up. We could go three way right now. Hey, Rami. <laughs> Terry. Terry was just lying. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like yeah, your thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's actually um, been kind of a moving target. My my initially, um, I, I, my timelines are horrible. But I'd say about five years ago, yeah, I was starting to. I mean, I think it was my. 40th birthday or something like that. and I was kind of like, yeah, okay, well, I'm 40, two kids, life is going okay, you know, um, where, and then, you know, retire, I just thought of it because somebody jokingly asked, oh yeah, you know, when you're retiring, and then I said, I should probably think of that. That's why I didn't really think about it until five years ago, but it has been a moving target at the time. I was associating it more with kind of a net worth picture. I was like, yeah, hmm. you know, once I get to this number and once I, you know, do this, maybe that's what I'll, um, you know, I'll kind of pack it in or, or that kind of thing. That was about five years ago. It definitely has changed since then. Cause I've just noticed that when you, when your network is growing, you're making good investments, you have, you know, you know, you actually, you start having fun with it in a way and you actually enjoy your lunches and coffees with people that are sure. making it happen. And you, so you're like, okay, well maybe that's not going to happen because you know, that, that is what it is. So I think my visualization, uh, visualization of retirement, would probably be obviously you know you, you want to keep your 
family life uh, as a base. I want to make sure my kids are, you know, my son got his learned his license actually last week. So Ooh. a lot of stuff going on at home. I know. Amazing. Little, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, I got to make sure they're doing their thing. But I think I see retirement as I think our generation, or especially speaking for myself, is going to be, I think I'm still just going to dabble in real estate, do investments and do what I love to do. Mm-hmm. I, I just think I see retirement um, not hustling every day and maybe seeing 20 clients a day. <laughs> yeah. that, that does, even though I love what I do, it does take a toll on, you know, your yeah, energy levels and you're pulled in different directions as we all are on a day-to-day basis at home and otherwise. So I see retirement as, you know, keep doing um, the real estate stuff and investing and, and, and stuff, but at, at your own pace. So you can kind of do it where you're not, you're not doing your eight to 10 hour days anymore and hustling that way. But I mean, how far out that is, I, I, um, actually it's been a frequent thing on our mind now last year or two. I, I just turned 45 this year. So I still have some time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I visualize. I, I mean, that's if once I get there, I think that's where, where it goes. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I, it's, uh, it's something, I mean, I'm a few years younger. I'm, I'm about to be 41 and mm. I mean, 41 by a lot, a lot of people would say, Oh, you know, you're a spring chicken, but it's, <laughs> you know, like you have to start to think about things like this, at least, at least roll them around in your head, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't make a plan like anything else in life, then when you get to that moment, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. Right. Everything takes, everything takes lots of planning and, and, and thought. Totally. And and if you look at our parents' generation, Andrew, I think it's, um, you know, they were kind of like, you know, we'll get one job, maybe two, get to a certain number, you get a pension that kicks in and then, um, here we go, right? And that's that's kind of you know that's often into their sixties and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you know my my understanding of what I've been looking into. And again, this is not definitive; this is my own opinion on it. Is I don't think there's going to be an actual like, oh, I'm going to turn sixty five and that light switch is going to go off. Um, I think it's going to be more, uh, you know, I'll just dabble here, do a little bit of this, maybe you know. Yeah. Um, and I think I think you and I would be in that category. Totally. Yeah. That could, the concept of like the, Oh, work your whole life or be a company man, have the pension, retire at 65 and golf and fish and live happily ever after. That yeah. is a, that's a dead theory. Um, I yeah. mean, it might be around in, in odds and sods, but yeah, I totally agree. That's, that's not yeah. a real thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I got one. There was one more thing I wanted to ask you. I think you're yeah. more than, and then I'll, you know, I'll, I don't want to take, take up more time than, than I should, but back to the real estate conversation, I've been mm. watching a trend on transactions and you're the person to be able to speak to it because not only do you sit in the right chair, but it's also, this is a race culture conversation that I've observed. Mm-hmm. So the, with, if I use Abbotsford as the example, and Abbotsford is the market that I, that I know the best, but you mm. know, we, I, I would imagine that Maybe this is true in other parts of the lower mainland as well, but in Abbotsford specifically, I believe based on population, I want to say the South Asian or, you know, specifically the Indo-Canadian community, I think represents about 36 or 37% of the population. And so, um, and you know, maybe that's a percentage or two off or whatever. When I, what, one of the things that's just been like shocking to me in the last, particularly the last, I'm going to say six months, I, I can't say that I started paying, t- paying attention to this prior to six months ago, was that mm-hmm. one would think that if you analyze the transactions within a marketplace, mm-hmm. the percentage of the transactions should roughly reflect the percentage of the population base, b- 
based on, you know, mm-hmm. according to, to their ethnicity or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm watching right now, and this is anecdotally, you know, I don't have the, the data from the Fraser Valley Board, but I can do my own research and know that, like, it's pretty accurate. The Indo-Canadian community is, like, they're, they're in some cases, I think, doing double. Like, they're representative of, like, 70% of the transactions that are occurring right now in the market. Mm. Yep. Do you, is that like, do you look, listen to that and go, yep, you're right. Or like, what is going on? How, like, no, you're, you're bang on. I, I was kind of smiling. You can't see me right now, but I was like, it's, 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 it, it, the reason I was smiling about it is this came up in, in, um, conversations, I think from June, July to now of several times. And I think there's one, um, event I was at in Vancouver about a month ago where somebody actually ran the soft analytics behind it. Okay. Um, I can't okay. So I'm not company. crazy. Somebody has been doing this. No. Okay. Totally, totally. And, and it's been noticed by a lot of people, particularly, I know you've noticed the last six months, I'd say, you know, post pandemic, uh, when, yeah. you know, from March, 2020 onwards, especially it's really shown out. Yeah. So you're bang on. And, and I think their analysis is amazing. Um, the numbers that I, were, I was given, uh, again, these were soft numbers, so they're not in any reports anywhere. Again, you know, so don't totally you know, quote me on it or anything. Yeah, yeah. Let's say Abbotsford. I, I, the number I I was quoted in the Fraser Valley from say Chilliwack to Langley, for example, and you know, Surrey's another market on its own. But is let's say Abbotsford is about a one third Indo Canadian population. Yeah, and and I think it is. It's it's roughly yeah. that. Yeah, it's roughly that. Yeah. They're doing about sixty percent of volume. They're doing sixty percent. Sixty. So they're all they're nearly doubling. Nearly doubling, which is, if you think about it, so if the other two-thirds is only doing 40, so it actually has a double impact. You're, you're more than, so it's two to one for sure. Yeah, and right? so the other significant uh, population bases, like, so we want to, let's say, you know, for lack of a better, you know, term, let's just say the Caucasian crowd or whatever, but the European descent crowd in Abbotsford, I think, represents roughly 50% of the population, I think. That's right. And then, and then the other, you know, whether it's like 15 to 20% would be a combination of a variety of other, you know, cultures and backgrounds, right? Uh, Chinese, Korean, but, but you're saying the combined, those groups together are Mm -hmm. only actually representative of about 40% of the transactions yet. They represent like 65 to 70% of the population. That's right. That's the number I was told by this analytics company in Vancouver, because we were joking around about it. He goes, Hey, I can probably pull it up pretty quick. So um, and, and it is actually shocking to me because, I mean, as you know, the chair I sit in, I see a lot of volume and I see a lot of people. I see, I, I see who's buying and who's selling and sure. so how much all day long. So yeah. I was kind of curious. So it's actually, that's why I was kind of smiling a bit when you brought this up because, yeah, it, it's astronomically um, high. And, and I think one more comment on that, Andrew, if you have a few minutes. Oh, it's, yeah, no, it's, I got time. I just, you know, I want to be wary yeah, of your time, but this is an intriguing topic to me. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of it is, um, and I, and I, I bring this, this, uh, approach to my life. Um, uh, what I'm going to say about why that is, because a lot of people, like I, even a couple of mortgage brokers just recently brought up, like, hey, dude, you know, we're, we're having a, you know, nice lunch one day in Abbotsford a few weeks back. And they're like, why is that? The same stat that we just talked about one third of the population is doing 60% of the volume in one way, shape or form. Yeah. And I said, you know, you know, and, and I relate that back to, you know, any kind of troubleshooting I've done in my life with my business or anything else. I go, when there's a massive, and you know, when we do real estate closings for realtors and mortgage workers, we, we try our best to make it seamless, but sometimes, you know, let's be real. We, we know there's issues sure. and we have to sit down with them. And sometimes it's angry, angry clients. And sometimes, so the approach I take to that, and I'll bring it back to the, you know, South Asian and the uh, world is, 
you have to, when you're problem solving at a high number, you have to understand what, what, and this is how I approach my big problems in life is who's in front of me, what's their background, why are they the way they are? Right. And that's troubleshooting, you know, an old lady that we've upset or some realtor didn't do something properly or more. If I'm troubleshooting somebody, I go inside that person's brain. I go, why is this person the way she is and, or, or he, she is, or, you know, and because I think that's the only way effectively communicating. Because you have to understand. So now here, like I was hearing when ALT came out with these, you know, the rules against those big monster houses on ALR. Right. That was the, that was the quote monster houses. Yeah. (laughs) Monster houses is all over the media, blah, blah, blah. And I had clients coming in, like, you know, like I said, my blessing is 15 people a day. I talk to me about this stuff. And some were like, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem. You know, I try to be approachable as possible. And they say, why are you guys building these 15,000 square foot houses on one acre? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So, you know. What are you people thinking, Terry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, the answer, you know, and, and it goes back to this 33% blank, 60% in low mainland is these guys. So if you look at their background, yeah. Majority of the people uh, come from a state of, uh, not to get into too much history, but no, the state no. of Punjab. They come, from the, Punjab. they come from the Punjab, which, like, I mean, you know, we don't need to try to be history buffs here, but I know enough to, and you would know, like, the Punjab is a very particular small state in India. It's not That's representative right. of all of India. It's a farming, a primarily a farming community, correct? Yeah, 100%. And, and the state of Punjab, like, so here's what people don't know. The people that we deal with on a day-to-day, people, uh, day-to-day basis, people like you and I, I in the lower mainland, they only represent 1.9% of all of India's population, less than 2%. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So all we see here is 95% Punjabi people out of the South yeah, Asian, uh, yeah. but they're only less than 2% of people out there. So, it, you know, and they it, due to persecution and some other political matters, but yeah. so they've ended up here. Now, if you look at their mindset, when it comes to real estate, it, you only way you can really truly comprehend it is their background. The most of them, I mean, they're getting more and more educated now going to the cities in India and all that stuff, but sure. they're tribal, they're tribal people. Totally. They come from villages. They come from tribes. Yeah. They're very naturally aggressive by nature. Yeah. So, you know, you, t- you take that and you add it into the real estate market. Now, to second that, one more second comment on that is they also do not understand at a high level stocks, bonds, and everything else, and, and, and retirement funds, and, and, and RIFs, and, and yeah. you know, you can go on and on about the other investments. Only thing they understand is land and real estate. That's Dirt. It. Because they're farmers. The farmers, that's where they come from, right? So, and then yeah. that's the only thing they value. They can touch it, they can walk on it, they can, you know, you know. But then, if you look at somebody, I'll just throw it out there some of my high net worth Mennonite clients, for example, I have yeah, lots of them. Totally. They have, you know, they'll have a nice, beautiful home on a small acreage. They'll have maybe one rental property. And then they'll have, you know, probably a third of their net worth in, um, in, uh, yeah. what do you call it? Like, totally. They're going to have mutual funds, be- stocks, bonds, whatever, anything like that. They've diversified. Exactly. So they've diversified. But these guys are 99.9. In some cases, I'm going to make a joke of this, 120% into real estate. <laughs> yeah, because, totally. you know, Private a, lending, a this, no problem. <laughs> well, and a, and a part of this is um, tribal uh, stuff. That's how they think. They go private lending or, the, or like they'll go to their neighbor. They'll go to their villager from back home in India and call them and say, hey, man, I bought a property. I'm short 100 grand. Can I pick up a draft tonight? Yeah. And, and that's real. Like, like that's, this, that's not this, a story. That's legit. Like that, that oh, happened. Yeah. And, and, and when I tell my, you know, you know, Caucasian friends, mortgage brokers and realtors, yeah. this story, they go, what? You guys give each other a hundred, 200 grand, the site unseen. I'm like, yeah. And it's not even no five, 10 grand. It's like hundred, 200 grand. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, and, and that, you know, that's a long answer to your short question, but it's nice to know the mindset. I have been wanting to kick this around with you, honestly, probably for months. And then you and I are both busy and we, we yeah. don't see each other and whatever, but like, it's, it is a incredible phenomenon of what is going on right now. Yep. Like, I mean, you know, you, you the, I love the word you use, you know, tribal culture and, and, mm. you know, you, and, and you see it play out, right? Like if someone goes, well, why do they build a 15,000 square foot house? Well, because culturally, historically, they live together, live in tribes, right? And yep. the yep. buying power that comes as a result of that, if you've got whatever, four, five, six, seven, eight income earners all <laughs> buying something together, like, uh, it, no wonder they're able to drive the real estate market. Like, it, it makes perfect sense. Well, I'm super glad you brought it up because you know what it is? It, it, I think it's it's twofold, the buying power. One is you have so many people to qualify for the mortgage, to be yes. honest. But the other is, hey, Andrew, um, I'm going to come by and see your wife and kids. Can you just make a draft for 200 grand because I'm short on my closing for tomorrow? Literally, they, they, they've been sitting on the board. They'll call people and say that. And say, I'll be over tonight picking up a draft. So now the buying power, not only your down payment, but mortgages and everything. And that's partly, that, that, that's why the 33 are buying 60. I think it's just, you know, I think that this topic, there's, there's, um, there's incredible, you know, there's, there's just incredible meat on, in this topic to discuss that's going on, you know, culturally, and that is going to have lasting effects for decades down the road as our, you know, the, the image and the picture of our real estate market goes in the, in the lower mainland, like, you know, we're going to see a shift like real estate for, for a long time has been held predominantly in Canada by let's say wealthy white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? Like in terms of the, 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 their lineage and this transfer that's going on in this, you know, very multicultural country we live in, but specifically in the lower mainland where, you know, people from the Punjab are here and they're here in big numbers. It's a huge, huge shift that's occurring. And, and it's really worth talking about and trying to figure out what does this mean for all different people, uh, 30 years from now, 60 years from now, a hundred years from now, because I I mean, it's like to think that this isn't going to have significant impacts on various groups of people is totally naive. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, and even my, myself being a realtor in the 90s and the early part of 2000 there, you know, the demographics in real estate were way different than they are today. Like you mean just even in like the actual agents? Even the or, actual or agents. You're saying, or you're saying ownership. I'll say in, in the agents too. Like if you just look at like people within the real estate community who hold licenses, whether it's for sales or even just think of all the, the stuff like around us. The, if because the Indo-Canadian community is doing all these transactions, logic would say they're also appearing in more significant numbers just within the business realm as well, right? Totally. And I think the, the answer to that, I think, based on my belief, is it's everything. Like, it's, it's not just the agents. It's also, like, if I was a realtor today and actually out there doing listing presentations and doing all that, I would not be doing what I did 20 years ago because it wouldn't work. Like, back then... You know, the, like now, if you have a VC box on a big lot, you're going to cater your listing to a Indo-Canadian buyer. And that's the only way you're going to market it. So it's shifted everything, how, how listings are done, how listing presentations are done. And, you know, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, thanks for uh, 
diving into that question with you. That was um, no, it's all good. I just uh, I'm I'm fascinated by it, and I'm I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. And um, I'm I'm constantly amazed and impressed by the fearlessness of these farmers that represent 1.9 percent of the population of India. It's absolutely mind blowing what they're capable of doing. Yeah, no, it's crazy seeing it in real numbers. Yep. Thanks, dude. This was a lot of fun. No, I, I appreciate it, Andrew. I mean, no, you, I know you and I talk all the time, but it's nice to, yeah, it's, it's good. I appreciate it. Yep. I will, uh, I will hope to see you here yet face to face over the, uh, the holiday season, but, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing your brain with us today. No problem. Okay. We will, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate Bye for it. now. Yep. Okay. Bye.